Hello, Iterative Marketers. Welcome to the Iterative Marketing Podcast, where each week we give marketers and entrepreneurs actionable ideas, techniques, and examples to improve your marketing results. If you want notes and links to the resources discussed on the show, sign up to get them emailed to you each week at iterativemarketing.net. There you'll also find the Iterative Marketing blog and our community LinkedIn group where you can share ideas and ask questions of your fellow Iterative Marketers. Now let's dive into the show. Hello and welcome to the Iterative Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Robinson, and with me as always is the industrious and innovative Elizabeth Aaron. How are you doing today, Elizabeth? I'm well. How are you, Steve? I'm doing pretty well, pretty well. I've been... uh, We've been cranking the classical music in our house these days. Oh, is um, is this out of the ordinary for you? A, a little bit. Uh, I, I think it's a, a combined uh, effort on my part to help calm the children. We have a five-year-old and a two-year-old, and it gets kind of chaotic. And uh, I've also found uh, uh, a newfound uh, appreciation for classical music. So now I need to uh, relearn or learn. I learned a little bit a long time ago about the different composers, but uh, it's been so long I've forgotten who I like and, and, and what kind of music and et cetera. So I'm uh, starting to, in my all my free time, re-educate myself. Now, you have very inquisitive children. So are they asking you questions about music and composers and are you able to answer those or they're just more just enjoying it right now they haven't been asking me questions yet but i've been force feeding them little bits of information like you know more like because they're five and two you know what does this song what does this song make you feel like and and did you hear this instrument but that may be just um setting myself up for something in the future here where they start asking me questions i don't know the answer to we'll see and then um, you actually have a third child. So does she not get to listen to the classical music? She gets to listen to the classical okay. music and, and she, she seems to like it. But she's also uh, six months old and not really, uh, uh, you know, still trying to figure out what, uh, you know, what things hurt when, when she hits herself in the head with them. So uh, classical is probably a little out of her, her reach at this point. Yeah, I wasn't sure if you were setting up some odd experiment with your children of, you know, what happens when these two get to listen to classical and this one doesn't? <laughs> no, no. But classical music is not what we're talking about today. What, uh, what are we talking about today? So today we're talking about measurement, specifically effective measurement. We came up with, before the show, basically four components to what we feel are important to keep an eye on or, or keep as, as parts of your, your measurement if you're measuring your marketing success. And we've talked about this before, you know, experimentation and measurement um, just on their own, you know, just because you're doing it doesn't necessarily mean you're doing it successfully um, or you're, you're realizing the benefits of it. And so when we talk about these four components, again, these are the things that really help to ensure that you're getting the most out of it. And so it starts with um, measuring your investment. Um, and what that comes down to is is really trying to figure out, um, before you can get to figuring out what your ROI is, you have to understand what you've invested to get there. And, and there's there's we're not just talking necessarily about the monetary investment, and we'll get more into that a little bit later in the episode. Yeah, we've talked about ROI a lot in the past in our reporting episodes and some other episodes. We'll link in the show notes. But mm-hmm. uh 
um, you know, ROI has that investment component, but it also has the, the return component, right? So what's the return of the outcomes? So the next thing we'll talk about, the second component we'll talk about is, is measuring outcomes, what it, what it means to be successful, either, either on an ongoing basis or in your experiments. The third thing we're going to take a look at is attribution. And um, I don't know if you would agree with me, but I sort of feel like attribution is, is marketing's holy grail. It's, it's what we all want to be able to do, but it seems to be just, just out of, out of grasp for us. Um, but specifically, really, what investments take credit for which outcomes? So what did we do and, and what did that result in? So we'll, we'll dive into what to look at when we're, when we're taking a look at attribution. Yeah, and and by dive in, I mean we'll we'll, we'll touch on it fairly briefly because it's a huge mm-hmm. rabbit hole, and we don't have time today to get into the details of it. <laughs> um, the fourth component is really time because um, a report doesn't do a whole lot of good if it's just one data point. We'll talk about how time impacts um, your measurement and your reporting uh, uh, when you start to set it in motion. And before we dive into into these four areas, um, I, I think it makes sense for us to really talk about why we chose this topic, because um, we do have a method to our madness when we sit down and we outline a podcast. And in this particular case, um, one thing that we hear over and over from clients is, is what is my ROI or is my marketing working? Um, and it's not necessarily always a, a yes or no question or, you know, there's not a straight answer. Um, and, and measurement really leads into that. And so that's that's really one of the reasons that we wanted to dive into this. And at the same time, you know, we've we've worked with clients or we've run across plenty of organizations where they're doing the measurement, they're they're doing the reporting, but but they're measuring for measurement's sake, or or worse than that, they're measuring vanity metrics because it's it's the metrics that they can make the graphs go up into the right and makes them look good, or that that, that gets them the 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 positive feedback from from the C suite, or because that's what they have access to in in Google Analytics, and so they've copied and pasted pasted that graph. It's hard because as marketers, you know, most of us aren't analysts by trade. And, and so really getting to understand and, and measurements and make them more actionable, it doesn't come naturally. It's something we really have to work towards. I know I've struggled with this and I'm lucky that I get to work with someone like you who um, is kind of this, <laughs> you've got this crazy mind for it. And, and I've, I think I've kind of absorbed some of that information and I feel very fortunate for it. Um, but it definitely is something that I, I know I have to work towards. Yeah, and I, I think it's something we all have to work towards. It's 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 hard to get your left brain and your right brain working in sync, and 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 this is definitely, uh, I think, a challenge for all of us marketers and myself included. So, I, at any rate, it definitely warranted a podcast episode, and I'm excited that we get to talk about it today. So, without further ado, let's talk about uh, what to measure, how to measure it, and then how we put that data to work. Excellent. So, the first thing is investment, right? Mm-hmm. This is. Uh, uh, you can't measure, you can't accurately report return on investment unless you understand the investment. So where are you putting the the effort in to get the outcomes that you want? And as I alluded to earlier, um, this isn't just necessarily um, the hard cost. It's not just the money that we're putting out there. There's other resources that we're using um, that, uh, you know, we're making a choice of where that goes. And so taking a look at not only the monetary side of it, but the the, the resources is important in understanding what that total investment is. So by measuring this, we have to, we actually have to go through the motions or the efforts of making sure that we understand where the dollars go. In other words, how are we segmenting our programs out and then understanding where the dollars actually go. And by dollars, that's not just advertising dollars. That's also cost of production too. Um, and then that do, and then take that one step further, do the same thing with time and, and figure out where has our time and our effort been going as well, because um, both internal time and agency time isn't always broken out or divvied up based on, on which marketing programs or efforts we put, we put that time into. 
And it's funny because I've worked for and with a number of organizations that really don't pay attention to, um, you know, to tracking time until, you know, you're talking about, all right, is this something, do I need to hire a new position for? And suddenly there's this, mm-hmm. you know, frantic search for, for logging time and what you're spending to try and determine if it makes sense to add a, a new part-time or full-time employee. Um, but again, this is this is another cost that is adding to the investment that you're making and, and something that we want to factor in and make sure that we are getting that ROI. So let's break this down for some t- tangible examples. So for example, say a, a company blog. If you have a company blog, you have um, you have some hard costs probably associated with that as far as uh, how much media does it cost to promote each blog post. But those are just the hard costs. And, and obviously, there's more that goes into writing a blog than just posting it. There's, you know, sourcing, writing, editing, publishing. Um, and so... And, and promoting. And, and again, not those hard costs, but the time it takes to do all of that. So what is that costing you? For another example, I mean, you can look at something like a pay-per-click program. And in this instance, um, uh, the hard costs are pretty straightforward. It's going to be what you paid for each click. But then the soft costs um, also come into that. Are you paying an outside consultant in order to manage this? If not, then what sort of time and effort goes internally into 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 managing that pay-per-click? And if so, what time goes into managing that consultant and and making sure that you're reviewing those reports and, and, and staying on top of the pay-per-click program? So next we look at measuring outcomes. And what we're looking for here is, is sort of this, this question of, did we move the ne- needle? And as cliched as that sound, that is what we all want to know about our marketing investment. The trick is understanding which needle we're supposed to be moving, right? Because mm-hmm. there's a million and one different metrics we can, we can measure. Google Analytics has all kinds of numbers buried in it. Um, and uh, this is where identifying the, the, the K part of a K- KPI, the, what is the key key performance indicator, not just any other performance indicator. And uh, I'm sure you're familiar with this, but you know, again, this is the metric that's indicating success. So uh, when we make a change to this number, then we are making a change in the overall effectiveness of our marketing efforts. And again, this is the one we really want to focus on. And not every um, program has one one number, right? Um, but there's... a uh, point. Uh, mm-hmm. usually you'll have one, maybe f- one to four, four numbers. And, and some of them are what are called leading indicators. Um, and some of them are what are called trailing indicators. There's a reason that we look at, at, at these two different ones as you identified them, trailing and leading. Um, and let's start with trailing. Um, trailing indicators are telling us if we've had overall success. And um, a lot of times this is the number that your finance team or your C-suite wants to focus on because this ties directly to um, your bottom line. And the pro- and that's good because it's showing us, you know, we can show that direct impact that we're having. The problem here is that depending on your sales cycle, a lot of time these these indicators are delayed. Um, if you've got a six month or a year long sales cycle, it's going to be six months or a year or longer before you start to, you can report on this and, and, and show, show the impact that, that your efforts have had. And that gets complicated because the C-suite doesn't always want to wait six months or a year to find out if your marketing program has been successful or not. It also makes it hard to optimize. Uh, because mm-hmm. um, if you're trying to take a, a, a you know an, a, a series of outcomes and use that information in order to make changes, then you have to wait six, twelve months in order to get feedback on your changes in order to make the next set of changes. So it it doesn't work and it doesn't create a tight enough feedback loop in order to perform optimizations. Not only that, but because these are typically tied to revenues or sales, they're not coming out of your marketing systems. They're going to be coming out of your CRM or your e-commerce system, and. Um, if you have the right data points, you can push that data into Google Analytics, but again, requires some setup and you have to know what you're tracking and looking for. And, um, you know, there's some prerequisites there. 
So uh, at the end of the day, um, trailing indicators would be great if we could all run our worlds off of trailing indicators. And if you work for an e-commerce company, you might be able to run off of the money because uh, it's pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, you don't have that long sales cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're uh, the rest of us working for B2B or a B2C organization with a, a long considered purchase cycle like a car – um, or healthcare, uh, then then you can't run off of trailing, and and you really have to run off of of other indicators in order to do your optimization, in order to determine success of an experiment. So again, these are going to be those indicators that tell you if you're on the right path by measuring something that is happening now that that you can, to Steve's point, you can optimize on, that you can report on today, not six months or a year or two years from now. Yeah, if you've uh, so so. And, and these are called leading indicators. Um, mm-hmm. uh, if you've ever heard of the the, uh, the phrase, a canary in a coal mine, I don't know if you actually know where that comes from, but um, we did actually use canaries in coal mines at one point in time, or at least small birds, right? Um, and and the canary was the leading indicator in that scenario. The coal miner would take the, the, the canary into the coal mine with them, and if there was uh, toxic gas in the coal mine, then well, the canary wouldn't make it. And so you'd watch the canary, and if the canary died, that meant get the heck out of the coal mine because because you were coming next. So in that case, the the leading indicator is the health of the canary, and the trailing indicator is the health of the coal miners, right? Yes. So as your very dark example has um, has has shown us, um, to be an effective effective leading indicator, the metric really has to be correlated to the trailing indicator. And as marketers, the way that we get to that is we look at our our trailing indicators and we look and see which other uh, metrics correlate to those to those indicators. So, if um, web traffic going up is uh, directly correlated to sales, then then we're able to 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 use web traffic as a as a leading indicator for sales. You do the same thing for leads or leads of a certain quality, or uh, you know, at uh, the number of demos. Demos is one one of our clients uses demos as a very key in, key leading indicator because if they demo their particular software, they know that they have a a consistent rate of conversion between that demo and the number of sales. Um, it's different for every business, but you should be able to find that correlation between those two metrics. So I just want to make sure I understand. So we're looking at our past data to see where, um, see when that leading indicator changes so we can identify what that trailing, how it impacts the trailing indicator. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. And it's not always perfect. You're going to have blips. You're going to have instances where where the, the leading indicator um, changes, but it's influenced by something else. And so to come back to our dark canary example, um, if that canary dies of old age, uh, everybody still gets out of the, the, the coal mine, right? That, that, that was influenced by an outside uh, situation and not because of, of, of what you were trying to measure, which was, was the gas in that case. So putting this into a, a real life example and not one where we kill poor innocent birds, um, if we were uh, working on a blog for an accounting firm, um, leading indicators would be dwell time on the blog post, shares, repeat visits. Um, those are things that we could track in the moment that could also be tied to those trailing indicators, which could be new clients or retained clients. Um, if you flip that and look at like a pay-per-click site um, uh, or paper, pay-per-click for an e-commerce site, here your leading indicators would be um, simple things like uh, clicks, but 
also sales because you're going to get that sales data right away. So in that case, your trailing indicator is not only your sales, but also things like lifetime value of a customer, which you're not going to know initially. You're going to know that they put something in their cart and they checked out, but you're going to know, not going to know if that's a customer for life or if that was a one-time situation, right? I think you brought up a really great point, Steve, in that um, both your trailing and your leading indicators can involve sales if that works with your business model. Either way, it's, uh, I think it's a good time for a break. Um, so let's go help some people. Before we continue, I'd like to take a quick moment to ask you iterative marketers a small but meaningful favor and ask that you give a few dollars to a charity that's important to one of our own. This week, we are asking that you make a donation to Waterkeeper Alliance. Protecting rivers, lakes, and coastal waterways on six continents, Waterkeeper Alliance is dedicated to fighting for every community's right to drinkable, fishable, and swimmable water. Learn more at waterkeeper.org or visit the link in the show notes. If you would like to submit your cause for consideration for our next podcast, please visit iterativemarketing.net slash podcast and click the share a cause button. We love sharing causes that are important to you. And we're back. So uh, before the break, we talked about uh, measuring your costs or your investments, right? Both hard and soft. And then we also talked about measuring your outcomes. But I think it's important that we take a moment to talk about how we connect the, the, the costs or investments to the outcomes. And, and to do that, we'll talk about a term called attribution. And as you mentioned earlier, it's important to note, this is very, very high level. We definitely can't get into uh, everything about attribution, but I think that um, you know this may be something we want to explore in the future. Yeah. We talk about attribution. There's, there's a number of what are called attribution models. Um, they're models because they're not perfect. They're the best we can do in order to, to, to try and uh, come up with a way to look at which investments um, result in which outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, the simplest form of attribution models are where we take an, an entire sale and attribute it to one given investment. And that's that's really kind of uh, very simplistic, and it's not the way that marketing actually works. Just because I, you know, somebody clicked on a pay-per-click ad doesn't mean that that's the only reason why they bought from us. Just because uh, we know that they saw a billboard does not mean that that's the only reason that they bought from us. However, to get more complicated than that is 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 sometimes beyond the capabilities of a lot of marketing organizations. So in its simplest format, if we are attributing that revenue revenue to the first touch, then that's called first touch attribution. And if we're attributing that revenue to the last piece of marketing t- they touched, then that would be last touch attribution. So like Steve said, very, very simple. But that's also how most of our analytics systems work. Like Google Analytics out of the box will do, um, I believe it does a, a form of last touch attribution. So does AdWords. Um, to get more complex than that is when you get into what's something called multi-touch attribution. And that's where we start to say, well, they touched these six things, so we're going to divvy the revenue up based on the six things that we think that they touched along their way in their journey. And and that gets that gets really complicated because there's several different types of, of multi-touch attribution models. Again, rabbit hole that we don't want to dive down too far into today. So um, uh, just know that you can get more complicated than first and last touch and uh, that first and last touch are, are really inaccurate because they don't take that whole journey into consideration. Yeah, so no matter which, which attribution model you choose, um, what we're looking for is, is finding a way to measure when a touch point occurs and which of those investments are responsible for that touch point. So when we start talking about digital efforts, um, you know, this is this 
we've got means available to us that makes this a little bit easier than I think is in traditional advertising. And we'll touch on that in just a second here. But when we're specifically talk, talking about digital efforts, it's tagging your URLs. Um, and uh, we'll link to some really great resources in the show notes because I know I said tagging your URLs and there's a lot more behind that than the three words that I just said. Yeah, but really it's just keeping a ledger of where you where you invested and then making sure that that ties back to a click so that then you can come back and say, we, we paid this much for these clicks and that resulted in this much revenue at some point down the line. Yes, it's more complicated than that. That's why we're linking to more resources. Um, you can do the same thing to some extent for traditional, although it gets a little bit fuzzier. Um, uh, I think marketers generally take one of two tacks for this, right? Some organizations uh, look at the probability that a prospect saw or experienced a certain piece of marketing or advertising and try and formulate that into the equation. Um, another tactic is, tactic is to try and use surveys of new and existing customers and see what they can recall. Um, and so neither one is, is perfect, um, but it does give us an opportunity to measure. So let's, um, let's break this down and talk about uh, a couple of examples that we referenced earlier, like a, a company blog. Um, there are a few questions you need to ask internally to decide how you want to do your attribution for your blog. And every org organization is going to be different, so you're going to have to come up with your answer for these because, well, again, every method is going to be slightly inaccurate. So um, uh, the first question you need to ask is, is what constitutes when a sale was influenced by a blog post? Um, does that mean that somebody just saw it along the way in their journey? Or does that mean that this was uh, the thing that made them buy, right? Um, and, and, and the best way you can guess that is this is the thing that they clicked uh, to submit a lead or make a purchase off of. Another thing to keep in mind is, uh, did they just have to interact with this one blog post or did they have to interact with multiple blog posts on their journey to completing whatever that action is that we've, we've identified as our conversion? And then was that blog, did that blog post have to be the source of that person being introduced to our brand or company? Um, because uh, if we spend a bunch of money on some other awareness building or lead generation or traffic generation tactics somewhere else and, and they just happen to also hit our blog, does that really matter, right? So um, some organizations only count it as influencing a sale if that's where that person became aware of, of, of the brand or organization. Looking at our other example, pay-per-click, um, one of the questions we want to know is what constitutes a sale that was influenced by a pay-per-click ad? And so here, again, we have to ask that question. Was pay-per-click the actual origination of, of that interaction? Would that person have found us otherwise if it weren't for the pay-per-click post? Or had they found us previously before they interacted with a pay-per-click post? Did they have to click on a paid ad somewhere along their journey? Um, and... It didn't matter which ad they clicked on or just any ad would have worked. And then finally, again, was this the last ad that they clicked on or the last thing that they did before they made that purchase? So, um, or were there other things that influenced that purchase along the way? So how you answer these questions is going to help to determine which of the attribution models you want to use. I'm um, going to throw a little bit of a curveball out there and I know we didn't want to get too far into attribution modeling, but um, how much does technology play a role in this too and your ability to measure? Uh, it plays a huge role because if you can't tell if somebody interacted with that particular uh, thing that you put a bunch of money and effort into, then you have no way of ever attributing any sales to it. So here's where having uh, solid systems for, for tracking engagement and interaction with your digital assets is, is key, as well as having solid data 
um, the best data you can on some of your more traditional uh, investments and who may have seen them and the probability that they saw them or interacted with them or, uh, again, coming back, survey data. In either case, the better you have uh, as far as uh, uh, sensing that um, in technology through, through taking Google Analytics and pushing it to its extremes, using a marketing automation system, whatever, the better you're going to be able to, to accurately do that attribution. And finally, the fourth component, time. We mentioned time, but um, how does that factor into all of this? Well, I think, you know, if you look at it, um, measurement uh, uh, of one data point doesn't create anything actionable, right? If I know my bank balance today, that that may or may not be useful a whole lot if I don't know what it was last week or, 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 or I don't have a goal for what it's supposed to be three weeks from now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we really need to put our, our metrics in motion in order to be able to get useful information out of them. And there are two things that, that make that possible, to make that information use, useful and, and actionable, and that's trends and experiments. So when we're talking specifically about trends, we're looking at how can past performance of a particular metric predict the future success or failure of what it is that we're doing. Right. So if you have a KPI that that seems to be um, improving in its its performance uh, week by week by week, you can anticipate that it's going to continue to improve in its performance, and therefore you can you can uh, anticipate um, the better results that might come. And then likewise, if you have a KPI that's diminishing week by week by week, well now you know okay, this is starting to not work anymore. We need to take some corrective action because otherwise the future means some bad numbers, right? So it, it's it's a way of taking the past and and and, and predicting the future um, against the warnings at the end of every financial commercial you've ever seen. Of course, of course, and it's when we combine um, these trends with experiments that things start to get really interesting, and, and we can we can see some of that change. Um, and what we're talking about when we talk about experiments is if I were to change one particular input, how does this change my output? How do I I I, I change what's going on with the trend that I've already I've already identified and recognized? Yeah, and the best the best example of this is the the, the what we keep coming back to the A B test, right? So. Um, uh, the nice thing about A-B, t- A-B test is you're, you're usually controlling the number of inputs that you're changing, the number of things that you're changing, and then you're watching the, the KPIs on the other side to see how they've changed. But there's another component of time that we need to consider, and that is making sure that we have enough time to let data accumulate so that it can be actionable. Traditionally, uh, marketers would do this uh, by uh, running all of their marketing in in a campaign format, right? So we would launch a campaign on a given date. We would run, run, run for a given period of time, and then we'd end that campaign and then start the next campaign. At the end of that campaign, we would run a a postmortem or some analysis of how did that campaign do, right? And look at the data backwards to, to, to come to a conclusion. But in iterative marketing, we don't believe in time boxing, and we've talked about this a lot before. Um, we'll link back to a, an episode where we go into more detail if this is if this is a new concept. Um, but really, what we're looking at is that when we remove the campaign start and end dates, we don't have a built-in point for analysis anymore. Um, and so, one of the things that we want to make sh- make sure that we're doing is that we're taking a look um, over a, a specified period of time. And that time has to be broad enough in order to get the data we need, but also not too narrow. So you can think of that about it. Do I want to look at this data at the 
um, at the five foot view or the fifty thousand foot view or where in between there if we if we start analyzing data on a daily basis it it doesn't work for us and it doesn't work for us for for two reasons one um, you can count that your prospects are going to react differently depending on the days of the week. So there in and of itself, you're going to have different data on Saturday and Sunday than you're going to have on Tuesdays, for example. Um, the same thing would be true for holidays. You're going to have different data on Thanksgiving Thursday versus any Thursday in September. Um, the other reason why you can't look at the data on a daily basis is because unless you're just cranking out tons of volume, uh, you're going to have graphs that are going up and down and up and down and up and down like crazy, and you're not going to be able to find the signal within the noise. There's a certain randomness to the way that people act that 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 is going to um, uh, cause uh, uh, your analysis to be uh, unusable at a, at a certain certain level. So you need to spread out that time and look at broader chunks of time in order to be able to to do effective analysis. And there's one more piece to this, and, and that is when we're looking at experiment analysis, we have to make sure that um, when we're reporting on, on the results of our experiment that we are confident that we can reproduce them, and that comes down to statistical confidence, um, which means that we've been able to accumulate data for a long enough period that we can either determine a result with that high desired statistical significance, or we can determine that we're never going to be able to tell the difference, um, which is, is also a conclusion that can happen from your experiments. There's one more wrinkle. And that is that in, in order to be able to uh, effectively understand a change, we have to have a period of non-change on both sides of it, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, so if, 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 I'm, if I'm changing something every single day, then my KPIs are going to be all over the place. My metrics will be all over the place. And I'm not going to really be able to tell, well, what was this before the change and what was this after the change? So you have to limit the number of changes you have in a given period. So for example, if I were to make a bid change today, I have to let enough data accumulate to make me comfortable knowing that that bid change had the desired effect. Um, and this means make uh, this means that enough time has passed where no other changes were made that you know they could potentially be influencing this one that I'm I'm, I'm testing that I'm specifically looking at. And this is hard because you know once you kind of get a taste of experimentation, you want to keep it going, and um, you have to remember to pull pull back on the reins a little bit and make sure that that you're not you know one change isn't influencing another change. And you also want to um, uh, the same thing is true of optimization. If you're going in and you're you're tweaking things because you you can see that the data is telling you that. Uh, um, uh, that this is uh, th that you're missing opportunities, then you, you want to go in and do that as often as you possibly can. But the the reality is that you you need to let enough data accumulate in order to make sure that you're confident in making that tweak to that that op you know that optimization. So we've given you a, a couple of different things of what not to do um, in terms of time, but I, I think it might be helpful, Steve, if we if we go into what what we would recommend or what we've seen has worked, um, and specifically uh, that comes down to um, wh what we've seen uh, in terms of a time frame that makes sense for experimentation. And and for us and for our clients, we've kind of we've we've come to settle on a monthly cadence or a monthly cycle. Um, so this cycle uh, is sort of the the backbone or spine to which we do our optimization in our experiments so that we can make sure that we have a a recurring time break regardless of 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 the programs that may run indefinitely 
So this doesn't necessarily mean that we only look at this monthly. We actually go in weekly and do check-ins on the data to make sure that nothing has gone off the rails um, and to also determine if any of the experiments have, have collected enough data that we can make a call on it. Because again, we only have a finite period of time that we can run experiments. So if an experiment has concluded, we want to we turn that one off, implement the changes, and get the next one in place so we can continue to build on those insights that we're, we're learning. We also do weekly optimizations of, of data points that accumulate a lot of data. So examples of this are things like um, bids and keywords and AdWords, um, some of the bidding and, and, and uh, uh, targeting and media optimizations that we might do with programmatic media where you have a high volume of data and we can go in and make changes weekly because we have enough data before the change and after the change to make the, make the optimization. And then at mid-month, we're going to take a look at our, our trends for the month and identify anything that requires immediate action that must be identified right then. And then when we get to the end of the month, that's when our heavy analysis occurs. And that's when, at that point, we've given our programs that are running enough time to accumulate that data through those weekly check-ins and that mid-cycle check-in. We've been able to iron out some of those fluctuations that occur due to, to you know external noise or those weekly and monthly cycles that we talked about. Conversely, if we if if we tried to do the analysis more often than monthly, um, it would be a significant. Say we did it twice a month. If we tried to do heavy analysis twice a month, that would be double the effort on that analysis. But the return isn't going to be there for. We're not going to get twice the return on that analysis, right? So we found that that monthly is enough to keep us nimble and keep our clients nimble, so that we're 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 responding and reacting to changes. We are uh, uh, reporting and keeping everybody in the loop. But at the same time, it's not overkill, where we're constantly trying to do deep analysis into into uh, trends and what's working at the same time. I think another benefit of, of a monthly reporting is it sets up a regular cadence um, for meetings, so that we make sure we're taking action on the data. Because as everyone knows. You know, you have the best intentions and all of a sudden six weeks have passed and you haven't had a chance to go back and look at it. So by making sure that we have monthly meetings, we know that we've got a scheduled time that we're going to check in, we're going to sit down, and we're going to have a conversation about this. So let's wrap up the points that we talked about today. Mm-hmm. Um, the first thing is, uh, the, the, the first key to accurate measurement is to understand your, your investment, your costs. Where is your money and where is your time going? Next, we look at measuring the outcomes, which are tied to the KPIs through both trailing and leading indicators. Third, we discussed uh, attribution, understanding how you connect those investments to the desired outcomes. And finally, we looked at the role of time and, and making sure that we have enough time to not only run our experiments, but identify the trends from those experiments. We touched briefly on four deeper topics today. We're going to, to, to link to plenty of resources in the show notes for deep dives, and you can bet we're going to revisit at least one or two of these in a future podcast episode. If you haven't already subscribed, you can do so at iterativemarketing.net. I want to thank everyone for making time for us again this week. Uh, if you haven't submitted a review on iTunes, we would really appreciate it. It helps others find our podcast and get the same value out of it that you hopefully did today. Until next week, onward and upward. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on YouTube or your favorite podcast directory. If you want notes and links to resources discussed on the show, sign up to get them emailed to you each week at iterativemarketing.net. There, you'll also find the Iterative Marketing blog and our community LinkedIn group where you can share ideas and ask questions of your fellow iterative marketers. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our username is at I-T-E-R, the number eight, I-V-E, or email us at podcast at iterativemarketing.net. 
The Iterative Marketing Podcast is a production of Brilliant Metrics, a consultancy helping brands and agencies rid the world of marketing waste. Our producer is Heather Ullman with transcription assistance from Emily Bechtel. Our music is by Seastock Audio Music Production and Sound Design. You can check them out at seastockaudio.com. We'll see you next week. Until then, onward and upward.